Okay, John chapter 10, continuing on from a passage last week that began Jesus bringing a new word, a new word picture where he declared himself to be the good shepherd of the sheep of his fold who are the people of God. We'll continue on that today. So if you would stand to your feet. I don't know who's over the air. I feel fine, but I see a whole lot of people waving bulletins this morning. So this is just an announcement abroad. If anyone out there that can hear me and do anything about it, maybe take it down a notch. All right. John chapter 10, verses 7 through 21. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, in our moments this morning in your word, I just pray that you would enliven it. Uh, bring it to light in, uh, in a way that is uh, supernatural so that we have spiritual eyes that can see and understand uh, what is not meant to be mysterious. It's meant to be a word picture that we can relate to. Maybe not as, as much as the culture in the Middle East in that day, but we still can understand a good shepherd and a flock of sheep and uh, wolves and uh, dangers and, uh, and, and what it means for a good shepherd to be good and why. And so, Lord, help us to see with spiritual eyes the truths of this passage, the theological truths, the practical truths. And I pray that our uh, souls be uh, richly blessed. I pray that uh, our affections for you be stirred this morning. I pray that in about half hour's time, we would be uh, seeing afresh your goodness and being more in love with you than we are even now. And so I pray it in Jesus' name that you would increase, that I must decrease. Amen. Okay, so great picture here, great metaphor. Uh, it's been so rich studying this for the last couple of weeks, but introduced last week, Jesus is talking about the Pharisaical leadership of the Pharisees, that they are not good shepherds of the sheep of Israel. That the idea of a good shepherd or a true shepherd is that he loves his sheep, that he purchases them, that he names them, that he nourishes them, that he loves them, that he pastures them, that he thwarts any danger that would befall upon them, that he gives his own life for them, that he goes after them when they are in danger, and he knows where to find them because he knows their nature. And he talks about the thieves and robbers in context of those who uh, don't love the sheep. They're, they're coming and taking sheep that are not their own to start an illegitimate flock for ignoble and selfish purposes to glorify themselves, to lord their spiritual leadership over a flock that is not true, to use God's flock to bring glory to themselves. Make sense? So he's calling out their uh, self-righteous and selfish and uh, uh, ungodly leadership and contrasting that to what a true shepherd is. Who is he? The good shepherd. 
And he begins this metaphor and he continues it in today. Of course, he's continuing the same discourse. We're picking it back up today. In verse 7, so again, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, He's talked about uh, being the breaker, the one who goes before, brings them in, brings them out. We have the bloody wounded Savior who fights off sin, death, and Satan on our behalf, just the way any good sh uh, shepherd would. What a beautiful picture that was last week. Now he says, I am the door. And, uh, and so by door, we're meant to understand entrance into the fold of God. Like there, there's no way that we, as Romans 5 says, as enemies of God, can be reconciled unto God, can have right relationship with God. And by the way, nothing else in this world ever satisfies our soul, the hunger and thirst that we have for something to satisfy us. We are created to know God. And the fall that caused the separation, we come longing. We come, it's a, there's a built-in programming system that hungers and thirsts for that which only God can satisfy. And, and, and many are blind to that, spiritually blind, lost, don't even know what they're looking for. Just know there's something missing unless and until they find God, unless they find that cross-shaped hole and they fill it with the cross of Jesus Christ and all of a sudden they're full. Well, what we're told here, the entrance into right relationship with God, the entrance into uh, what he's going to call shortly, not just eternal life one day, but an abundant life this day, is through Jesus. He's the door. He said, I'm the one. You got, he's going to make it real clear in John 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way you get right with God is through Jesus. I want you to hear that. It's not through cleaning up your act. Without a doubt, cleaning up your act is a result of uh, knowing and loving Jesus and delighting in obedience. That will inevitably happen to an ever-increasing degree to a maturing Christian, but that's not what we do to earn his favor. In fact, there's really nothing, even our good deeds, Isaiah would say, are filthy rags. That there's almost always, even behind our best moments, there's usually some selfish motive behind there. The finished work of Christ is what we boast in. That he paid it all, and he paid it in full. And that's it. Our boast is in Christ alone. And so we have the idea that I'm the door. Jesus is the entrance. He's the one we must go through to get to God. Did you catch the pronoun the? It's not I'm a door. Among the other doors out there, I hope you find one of them. I'm one. No, no. Do not, do not swim in that river of cultural universalism that is a, a rising tide in our day, that all roads lead to the same place or all religions were created equally or whatever it may be. No. Jesus is abundantly clear in his exclusivity. There's one way to get to God. And it's not by climbing a ladder of good deeds and self-righteousness will fi finally God says, okay, that's enough, you're accepted. No, it's to be accepted by grace through faith in the righteousness of another who took our place in judgment, who paid the price for our sin. By the way, there is no other religious system or thought that, uh, that is even somewhat like Christianity. In every other religion, you are ultimately earning your way up to God, whereas in our uh, Christian religion, the gospel, it is God who made his way down to us, who sent his only begotten, enshrouded in flesh, born of a virgin, to live a life we couldn't live. In other words, we can't work our way up. So he did what we can't do and lived a righteous life to take our place in judgment, paying the price of our sin, that God be most merciful and just, and the mercy and justice of God meet on the cross of Jesus Christ. And then he's demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He took your place. 
He came to us. He paid the price. And the invitation is that of grace. You believe on him, the one lifted up as the curse for our sin, you will be saved. There is no other religion any, that speaks anything other than an anti-gospel. Our faith says Jesus is the door. That's it. You come through him, you find peace with God. And a whole lot of other stuff that we're going to talk about. But there's no other way to make peace with God except through him. That's it. He's the door. And that's where he starts. He's telling this Pharisaical leadership in the Jewish audience, you're not going to find it by following the letter of the law, the heavy yoke of legalism being placed on you by the hypocritical Pharisees. It'll never get you anywhere except frustration and discontent and emptiness and bitterness and discouragement and despair. But I'm the door. I'm the door. We're meant to go, okay, now. And, and by the way, let me say this. The way you enter through the door is not what is commonly culturally accepted in American Christianity. It's not, you know what? Maybe I should do this in case it's true. And even though I'm going to continue to live a life according to my desires and a life that is not consistent with the will of God, that really has nothing to do with his word or obeying him and is really not birthed out of love for him or a recognition of his love for me, but I would like the fire insurance of thinking if something tragically happens to me that at least I've entered the door. So let me go ahead and receive Jesus. just want to make the point that, that there's nothing like that in Scripture. That's, there, there's no category for that. There's no category for sheep that illegitimately come through the door, but because they came through the door, they're saved. The, the way you enter the door of Christ to get to God is one way. It's via contrition, which by the way is supernaturally imparted to you and upon you, that you literally are broken over your sinfulness, your self-righteousness. There's an awareness of the stench of your sin that you used to not have, but now you have. You're downwind to yourself. You get it. All you can say is somehow my eyes are open. I see myself in my life differently. And the illumination of the glory of Christ becomes real. And you say, there's the door. Everything else I've been knocking on is just dirty water. There's the living fount. And by the way, it wasn't your idea. It was impressed upon you. It was illumined. Your eyes, the scales from your eyes fell just like they did from Saul of Tarsus. And you said, let me in. And it was out of a, a desire for life and the realization of a spiritual bankruptcy to have it apart from any other way than the resurrected Christ. And that's a spiritual idea that God plants in your heart and calls you and beckons you and draws you. And once he illumines you to them, you'll bang on that door. And you'll hunger and thirst for righteousness that is not of your own. And you know what, Revelations, I'm mixing a lot of my metaphors here, but you know what Jesus will say? He says, you knock on that door, and, uh, or he says, I'm knocking. You let me in, and I'll dine with you, and you'll dine with me. You'll be satisfied. Okay, I'm the door, he says. And then he comes right here and he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now, in context, that's the Pharisaical leadership of Israel. There's a, there, it's also false messiahs. In this day, I found this interesting in my study. Gamaliel will speak just eight months later, Acts chapter five, 
Peter and the apostles have been in prison. The angel opens the door. They go back, right back to preaching. The Sanhedrin doesn't know what to do with them. They say, what do we do with these men? They won't shut up about Jesus. They want to kill them or lock them up. And, and Gamaliel wisely speaks to the Sanhedrin. He says, look, he says, um, Theudas arose and said he was something, said he was somebody. That's what Gamaliel says, I like that. Said he was somebody, had a following of 400. He was gonna lead the Jews out from their oppression from Rome. He was a political Messiah. And when he died, his sheep scattered and now it came to nothing. And then Judas of Galilee, uh, same thing. He said he was a Messiah, some followed, he had a good following. He died, sheep scattered, nothing. Jesus has died at this point, he's resurrected, he's ascended to the Father, that Peter and the apostles are preaching the gospel. Gamaliel says, look, if Jesus was really nothing like these others before him, leave it alone. The sheep will scatter, it'll be nothing. However, if he really is alive and their testimony really is true, you're opposing God and you don't want to do that. Those were wise words from Gamaliel. By the way, which one was it? You don't want to oppose God. He's alive. Uh, two millennia later, uh, billions of people with life-transforming testimonies of the transforming power of the gospel would declare, oh yeah, he's alive. You better leave that one alone. And so I'm the door. False messiahs won't get you there. But watch what he comes back to, verse 9. I am the door. Doubles down. If anyone enters by me, you're going to get three things. You're going to give them two of, two, of, two of them in this verse right here. Anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Let me start with, he will be saved. There is an assurance for a sheep that's in the flock of God. He's going to talk about it uh, next, next week's sermon about uh, Satan cannot snatch you out. No wolf can get you. The father's got you. Or the son's got you. The father's got you. The spirit seals you. You're saved. But he, the precursors now, there's an assurance of salvation. He will be saved. If you're truly saved, again, how'd you come through the door? There was real contrition and brokenness and recognition of sin and spiritual bankruptcy, and you longed for Christ, and you knocked in sincerity, and you received, and you know it, because the Holy Spirit came into you. You were converted, regenerated. You're alive when you were once dead. Your mind has already changed in the beginning, and man, it's like you're a new infant seeing the world with brand new eyes, and things are growing and happening and changing, and the saints say, Hey, how'd you, know, how'd you know my story? That's the story of a sheep. It's not, it's not meant to be altogether mysterious if you're in the fold of God. You're meant to know, hey, that's me. And, uh, and if that's you, you've got an assurance that's incredible. You don't have to die one day. Fingers crossed, legs crossed, arms crossed, hoping that he'll receive you into his presence. We don't do that. <laughs> We've got a living hope in the resurrected Christ. Listen, if we had to earn it, the most arrogant thing we could ever say is I'm assured of my salvation. That'd be the height of uh, self-righteous pride, that somehow this side of glory, you could claim that, that uh, you'll receive that which is uh, born out of your good works. That'd be the height of arrogance. However, flip that, if we are saved by the gift of God through Jesus Christ, who bore the weight of our sin and imputed his righteousness to us by grace through faith, then it would be the height of um, disrespect. I don't think that's quite the right word, but uh, some kind of impropriety to say that uh, we don't have an assurance as if he is not worthy. No, he's worthy. 
He's accomplished it. And if you've trusted in him, you may wander. But what does the good shepherd do when a sheep wanders? That's where we were last week. He's coming after you. He says, I won't lose one of mine. You may get lost from me, but I know right where you are. And I will bring you back. Isn't that great? I am so thankful. I love this metaphor. It helps me. I'm a dumb, wandering sheep, but I got a great shepherd, and he won't lose hold of me. Beautiful. So you will be saved. As sure as Christ was righteous and rose from the dead, we're meant to bask in the assurance of our salvation because of the righteousness of Christ. And you get something else. You'll go in and out and find pasture. Now, this is great. So the first thing you get is, is eternally you're secure. The second thing you get is you're going to be alive today. The sheep in the pasture of God are going to be robust, healthy sheep. They're going to have pasture. The idea is for a sheep to pasture, it is satisfied. It is, uh, it's being nourished. It's being sustained. And more than anything, it doesn't have to worry about all the chaos going on around it. Why? There's a shepherd that's demonstrating and de- demonstrated and demonstrates his love over and over every single day that's always faithful, and he's right here with me. Wow. You are meant to know what it is to pasture in this life. Now, we confuse this sometimes. Our, our fleshly tendency comes back and says, okay, is that earthly blessing? Is that health, wealth, prosperity? Well, you're not, you, you're not going to find that. God loves to dope blessings on his children, yes. But many of the godliest people we know and have seen in scriptures, their life wasn't a life of prosperity. It wasn't a life of worldly abundance. We're, we're foreigners here. If God gives you an abundance of means, that's the steward for his glory. What a, what a privilege, what a great stewardship. Uh, don't don't uh, think that, man, look how faithful I am, that God's made me so rich. What a, what a false theological assumption you would be making and a dangerous one. Uh, our reward is in heaven. We steward what he gives us today. One day he'll lavish rewards on us beyond what you can imagine. Your treasure in heaven, you'll receive it that day. And you know what you'll do with it? You're not going to be all blinged up walking around heaven saying, hey, what do think of all this? You're going to hurl it at the feet of Christ. Why don't we do the same now? Why don't we take what he's given us, steward it in a hurling to the feet of Christ sort of way? Let's practice for eternity. That's what a mature saint does. That's what a mature sheep does. And he'll get you there. He'll loosen our grip on the things of this world, slowly but surely. But he'll pasture us. Um, I sat with one of the dearest saints in this particular flock this Friday. Some of y'all know Kimpy Jenkins. Uh, Catherine and I went and sat with her for an hour or so. Barry is one of our elders. Kimpy's his far better half wife. And um, Kimpy is just really really unique. Um, We have some godly men and women in this body. I'm so grateful for their example, their love, their patience, their endurance, their prayers. Kimpy's one of those. We're just around her. It's kind of like around Jesus. She emanates the light of Christ. She is so selfless that every time I'm around her, I I catch wind of my self-absorption. You can't, you know, just this, the reflection and boy, uh, and it's the same way every time I go and sit with her. And right now, she's been given a diagnosis, and, and I'd love us as a body just be praying for Kempy. Uh, she's been given a diagnosis of maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. Uh, medically, that's where she is. 
she's on the precipice of being face to face with the Lord. And Catherine and I went and sat with her. She's had a tremendous impact on us. And, you know, we're, we're, we're there to love her, to comfort her, to talk about where she is, how she is, and, and pray for her. And, you know, it takes the first 20 minutes to get her to quit talking about you. You know, she just wants to know about every little thing, like little medical stuff going on me, like little bitty stuff. And I'm like, what are we talking about right now? And then she wants to know everything going on with the boys. And she wants to know how we are spiritually and how marriage going. And, you know, gosh. And finally, I'm like, hey, can we just stop? Okay, listen, I want to hear about you right now. And she's like, oh, psh, I'm great. I'm like, okay, well, let's dig a little bit into that. I want to hear from you. And one of the things I asked Kimby, I said, Kimby, I said, uh, here you are at this season of your life. Unless God decides to supernaturally heal you, and he might, but unless he does, about to meet the Lord, what are you, what's going through your mind right now? What, are, what, are you, what, is, uh, what is the wisdom you could deposit to me in, in this season of your life? Like, I just want to know where you are. You know what she said? She said something so profound, something so awesome. She said, um, you know what God keeps waking me up with? She says, every day I am, uh, I am having this profound realization of the greater depths of his love than I ever realized. Like, I, like I, I, it's like I'm seeing it new and afresh and deeper than I ever did. She said, it's not that I'm getting better at loving him, but I'm becoming more aware of the depth of his love for me. I wrote it down. She said, I'm just, he's waking me up with it and I am, it's unfathomable. I'm, I'm blown away. I, I sat there in the presence of a great, dear saint that is, a, that is a fat sheep in the pasture of God's flock. Here's why she's so fat. She longs for, craves, and sustained in full by the very presence of her good shepherd. She doesn't long for any other pasture. She doesn't look over there and go, well, maybe if, you know, when we're young sheep, it's kind of like, am I missing out? Like, should I wander over there? Let me check this out. She is saying, hey, I just want to get closer and closer and closer to the shepherd. Let me tell you, in a woman who's been given weeks, maybe months to live medically, you find in Kempe an aliveness. You find in her a joy in the midst of sorrow. Like there's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of sadness that goes with it. I mean, she's got her kids and grandkids and, and there's a lot of people she's loved and invested in and doesn't necessarily want to leave this world. It's like Paul in Philippians. I don't want to leave you, but if it's better for me to part, praise be to God because to be with him is far better. She's just got that. There's a joy. There is a peace that passes understanding. You can't humanly explain it to me, but boy, does she wear it. You sit with her, you'll know what Philippians 4 means. And she has a hope in grief, and the hope just kind of swallows up the grief. And she, she can't really talk about dying without talking about being alive in Christ. So it keeps leaking. How do you feel about where you are? I'm so close to him. Well, how do you feel right now? I'm almost there. Can you imagine what it will be like to be with Jesus? She gets, she goes, ooh. She said, I feel like the little girl at the pool growing up, like, you know, when the club pools used to have the high dives, I, don't, I think now they're deemed too dangerous or whatever. That was the best part of going to a club. But she said, uh, she said, I feel like I'm on that high dive where you get the butterflies in your stomach and you get out there on the end. And she says, uh, this is good. She says, it's, uh, you know, when you see your daddy treading water, he's going, hey, come on. 
then you got those butterflies like, whoo And you got a lot of folks cheering you on down here. And she said, I feel like I'm about to leap. And I don't have a single down. What's going to happen? I'm going to hit the water. She says, I've never seen Jesus so clearly. I've never heard him so clearly. I've never felt so enshrouded in his love. She'll say, I'm going to be with him. If only all of us could get an hour with Kimpy. You would know. I, I told her, I said, Kimpy, this is crazy. This is what I'm preaching this week. You're, you're, the, you're it. You're like the example of the sheep that I want to be. She is pasturing in the flock of God. And she is so alive in the midst of the most difficult worldly circumstances that you could face. And you know what it says here? The thief, you know what he'd like to do? He'd like to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he comes to do. The, the thief, the robbers already talked about in context are the Pharisees. You know what, they want, you, you know what the idea was? Uh, purposefully or inadvertently, they were stealing your joy of being dependent upon Christ. You're trying to do something over You're trying to run on the treadmill of righteousness where you're never going anywhere and you can't get anywhere and the yoke's being put upon you and it's frustrating and disheartening, steals your intimacy, steals your... Your joy kills your soul, destroys. And by the way, you know what the Pharisees' ignoble and illegitimate leadership was a shadow of or uh, idiomatic of? The ultimate thief, Satan, who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. I had a mentor told me, uh, he, can, I said, I can tell you, he said, I can tell you real quick what Satan's plan. We always want to know what's God's plan for our lives. He said, I can tell you real quick what Satan's plan is. And he would use, he said, these are the killer D's. I've never forgotten this. He said, the killer D's. He wants to disillusion you. He wants you to get, get you thinking that life is found where it's not and death is not found where it is. So the first thing he wants to do, disillusion. He wants to get you running down some trails in this road that ultimately lead to dead ends. That you put your hope in and your trust in and your satisfaction and your life in and your persona in and your identity in and your security in and your comfort in. And uh, you're um, uh, who you are in, and you run down those trails, and you waste this life disillusioned with where truth is, with where truth is not. And he says, then in your disillusionment, he's got you distracted. Now, I, I don't know. There's, there's probably one or two words for the American church right now that really hit the nail on the head. One of them's distracted. We're a church that uh, is the church of Laodicea and Rev, where it says, you are so rich, and yet you're poor, blind, wretched, and naked. We, uh, we have such an idolatry with worldliness and worldly stuff that we don't see our, 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 the pitifulness and the, the, the wasted lives that we lead chasing those things. We're distracted. Most of us have calendars so full we couldn't squeeze in intimacy with Christ if it hit us in the face. We're disillusioned with where life is and we're distracted in our pursuit of it. And he says, if you get you there inevitably before you know it, you'll be disqualified. You're going to be running on fumes. You're going to run into the thicket and the brushes of sin, and it will so easily entangle you. And now you're disqualified to play the one role God has given you, the privilege of being an ambassador of Christ, being filled with the joy that comes from co-missioning with Jesus Christ. It'll be gone. And the life will just be bleeding out of you. And you'll have a hard time. You husbands that, that, that cannot treat your wife lovingly, can't speak to her kindly, can't repent when you sin against her, we can't love our brides in any shadow of a way that Christ loves his, then we can't begin to represent him to us. So you've lost your purpose. 
disqualified, you're benched. Disillusionment into distraction, into disqualification. He said, and every time you get a sheep that's wandering in another pasture, disillusioned, distracted, tangled up in a sin, you're gonna have a despairing sheep. Despair. And when you're isolated and despairing, there'll be division between you and the body. You'll have broken relationships. Apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, you become hard-hearted to the voices of truth and think you're too far lost. That is Satan's agenda in every one of our lives, the killer D's. So let's be on our guard, be watchful that these things aren't happening to us. His goal is to steal your privilege, your intimacy with Jesus, your joy in Jesus, your perspective in Jesus, your hope in Jesus. He's trying to, Kempe said, the love of God feels like a huge warm blanket that he's wrapping around me. Satan is trying to pull that off of you. I want you to leave you cold, naked, and pitiful. Jesus says this. Look what he responds with. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And the definition of abundant life is not the abundance of possessions. That's a wisdom issue. That's a stewardship issue. It's the abundance of his presence. It's to be full. It's to be satisfied. And here's how he says that we would know that he is indeed who he said he is. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for a sheep. Now he's saying this before he goes to the cross. But here's how you'll know I'm for real. He's a hired hand and not a shepherd. He who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He doesn't care about the sheep. As soon as danger comes, he's out. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Now here's your third blessing. I know my own and my own know me. That's pretty profound. Knowing in the Bible is, is relational intimacy. This is not knowing the stat sheet. This is not, you know, throws righty, lefty, batting average, stolen bases, contact percentage. This is not, you're not going to find it on Game Changer. This right here is relational intimacy. It is delight. It's to be enraptured by. The best way I can explain the closest human relationship I can get is when I think about my children, I could tell you I know my boys. And what I mean by that is not just height, weight, you know, how they're doing in school, report card. I can go far beyond that. I can get you into gifts. I can get you into wiring. I can get you into personality. Uh, I can get into nature. I could even tell you that I know more about them than they know about themselves. And I could tell you that my desire to, for them is to help them see about themselves what I see in them and about them. My nurturing goal is to shepherd them to good pasture, and it's out of love for them. And would I lay my life? Yes. So there's knowledge of that's relational intimacy with. This is not to know about. This is to know. And Jesus says, here's your privilege as one of my sheep. You know me. I know you. Now, that's already a, a big, great thought, but it gets bigger and greater the, when he qualifies it. Look at this, 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Whoa, that one stopped me in my tracks several times this week. Jesus says your privilege when you enter the door is to know me like I know the Father and to be known by me like the Father knows me. Can you stop and imagine that with me? Jesus, eternally known by the Father, the, the relational intimacy there to be uh, uh, unfathomably incomparable to any human relationship we would know. And he says, yet that's what you have with me and what I have with you when you enter through the door into the flock of God. 
You're a child of God. You're a co-heir with me. We're meant to have that. And if you're out there going, gosh, that sounds amazing. I don't feel like I have that kind of intimacy with Christ. I would say you're meant for that. And if you're not acting on your privilege, and if you're not delighting in the one who delights in you, then refer back to that list of killer D's and see where the enemy has you off track. There's meant to be a fullness and a richness and an incomparable, uh, overwhelming, all-fulfilling, unconditional, relational intimacy, relationship we have with Jesus that no one can steal. No robber can come and take away from you. I, I tried so hard this week to think of a really good illustration. I've spent more time than I usually do thinking there's got to be a way to drive this home and I, and I, I don't have a good one. I don't, I don't have any great epic story that helps us be waylaid by the love of God in Christ. But I did have the uh, thought that came to mind several times. It's not flashy, it's not epic. This is the least sexy illustration I'll ever give you. But my wife has asked me multiple times, what's my favorite childhood memory? What's my favorite family vacation? She's always kind of trying to think of, you know, what we could kind of recapture with our family. And, uh, and I have the weirdest number one of all the wonderful, big, big time, kind of epic vacational type memories or big moments of life. There's this one moment that rises past all the epic ones to the top. And it's so simple and it's so non-exhilarating to tell the story, but I'm gonna tell you that uh, I was probably 13, 12, 13, 14, uh, dad was still alive, and I uh, vividly remember a spring break where we were going to the ranch, going to my grandparents' ranch, and we drove um, in our old, uh, uh, old school suburban, we drove uh, to Texas, it was a lot longer drive then, it was about 11 hours then, and uh, we drove, early, left early morning, drove through the day, had all the different stops for me and my sisters, and we eventually get there and it's, it's the wee hours. It's really late. It's like between 11 and midnight. And I remember when we turned off Interstate 90 onto the gravel road. This is my favorite thing in the world. We turn onto that gravel road. And I would always ask my dad if I could roll the windows down. I always wanted to smell the country as we turned on. And I wanted to hear the tires kind of grind on the gravel rocks. And we'd turn on that road and we'd go down. It was one mile from the time we got on that to the to the driveway of, of the ranch and then about another 300 yards up to the house. And when we were on that road and the sweet smell came, we pull up and I was beginning to feel the emotion rise, the great joy of knowing that I was home. And we would come in through that gate and, and, and it was always me, my sisters didn't like dodging the manure piles, but I loved to get out, I'd hop out and I'd kind of hop around and you know, cattle kind of around and I'd get to the little crickety old gate and I would open it. And, on this, and normally we, if we came in late, it was just us, but I noticed Pop and Granny were sitting on the bench on the front porch waiting on us, probably 11.30 at night. And we pulled in and quickly unloaded and went, and my grandfather and grandmother had a, had a very keen sense of humor. They were normally asleep by now. I think we were all a little delirious. But we went inside, and instead of my father saying, hey, let's go unpack, go to bed, for some reason, he let, he let us just sit in it for a minute. Pop and Granny stayed away. We sat, we plopped our stuff. We sat down in the den and, and Pop and Granny had this kind of sarcastic, hilarious sense of humor, the way they talked to each other. They got going and uh, I got to laughing 
and it grew, and for about an hour and a half, we just had conversation that was absolutely hilarious. I vividly remember being doubled over at one point on the couch. I was holding both of my sides, you know where you push under your ribs because you're cramping because of the laughter? I was holding both sides, it hurt so bad to keep laughing. And I remember just feeling uh, very vivid memory. So this is the number one memory of my childhood, very vivid memory. In that moment, some one o'clock in the morning, surrounded by the people most dear to me on this earth, laughing till it hurt, thinking, I never want this to end. And I was so hopeful in the moment. I, I knew what was coming tomorrow. We're at the ranch and we get to be, and I, it was like the unconditional nature of the relational intimacy in that moment, in that room, was the most full a boy could ever be. And I'm, I see glimpses of it in my kids all the time. You know what their favorite thing is? And I, I know this may change in coming years. But right now their favorite thing is family night. And so our schedules are so hectic, it's real hard. It's real hard to get one. And, it, and if we have a good rain out or games are canceled, it's just, they get real excited about a family where we're all together. And I see in them when I remember, just get us all together. Just, just for a moment, just right here, basking in, the, in, in that warm blanket of unconditional love where you just, you just don't want to leave it. Jesus says, this is what I've got for my sheep. It is to be in me and me to be in you in a way that literally you rise to meet me in the morning. And there is a breath of life in you it's a spiritual breath that many people are longing and clawing and grinding for, and they're just lost and blind. And you are alive, and your thirst has been quenched, and there's waters of living water flowing from your belly. And there's an unstealable, unshakable joy and intimacy and delight and peace and hope, and it's yours. It's knowing me and me knowing you like I know the Father, and the Father knows me. Satan would love to take that from you. He'd love to send you out chasing the American dream. Jesus says, should you wander, should you come to your senses, I'll be right on your trail. I'll be running to lay hold of my sheep, and I will bring you back. And we're prone to wander often, we're prone to sin, but our Savior is good. And he brings us back. And he says here, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. By the way, can I just say this? When we just glimpse, even as I talk, I'm, it's what Kempe said, I just am coming more aware of his love, the depth of it. You know, he accept it from a little kid, God loves me. But to begin to bask in the experience of it. You know what that produces in us? A desire to be closer to him. It's reciprocal. And that's how you know you're a sheep in the flock of God. Your desires are changing. The, the last, my least favorite place on earth to be was church. I want my boys to hear that too loudly, but when I was there, I just, that was my least favorite place to be. I just couldn't go quick enough. I just got dragged in and you know what my favorite place to be right now is? My favorite place in the world is right here. I don't mean at this pulpit. I mean here with brothers and sisters who know what I know and are experiencing what I'm experiencing, basking in it, reveling in it, 
shouting forth in rejoicing worship. And it's the, it's the fullest, it's the closest I can get to being in his very presence. The Bible used to be dead to me. It was just, it was a book I didn't understand. Now, every time I sit in it, this morning early, cup of coffee, it was so, I've been in this all week. I've been in the same passage all week. And I read it and it was like, I was reading it for the first time again. I literally stopped and smelled it. It's so alive. It's so good. I just want to just get close. This book was dead. Now it's alive. I had no prayer life. Now it's my greatest privilege. It's the heartbeat of every thought that comes into mind, ensuring that and processing that, bringing that before Jesus and listening and meditating. You're captured in his love and it's reciprocal relationship and you begin to grow as a sheep towards maturity and your delight becomes him to an ever-increasing degree. And he says in 16, I got other sheep that you know nothing about. I'm rounding third and heading home. Matt Mitchell said that means I have 40 minutes left. I'm gonna prove him wrong. You were at our volunteer banquet. It was basically a roast of me. Okay. I have other sheep that you know this full. That means Gentiles. This is the church. I'm going to bring them in also. There are people that are not a people that I'm going to bring into the fold of God. That's most of you here that are Gentiles. And they'll hear my voice. Is God worried about getting a Gentile to believe? No. I'm going to illumine them to the truth. They'll hear my voice and they'll come. So there'll be one flock, one shepherd, and that'll be a display of my power and my glory for the whole world to see. For this reason, the Father loves me, not conditionally, but as a culmination of, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Now, don't miss this last point, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I got authority to lay it down. I got authority to take it up. This charge I've received from my Father. My Father said, do it. I'm doing it. I've been given. Who's got all authority on heaven and earth? God. He's entrusted it to Christ. Great commission. I've been given all authority. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it up. By the way, here's the deal. How do we know these beautiful life-giving words of verses 7 through 21? How do we know they're true? How do we know it's just not Narnia? It's just not make-believe. It's just not too good to be true. One way you know, and boy do you know. He said, he, he, he laced the whole thing with, I'll lay down my life for my sheep. That'll be the proof. When it comes time for me to die or you to die, I'm taking the hit. The false shepherds, they won't do it. They'll run. But when me or you has to pay the price and the weight of sin, I'm doing it. My sheep won't do it. I'll do it. And so we're watching, will he do it? And he says, I'll lay it down. He did. And he says, I'll take it up. Now, let me tell you something. I'm your pastor. I love you. I'd like to think, push came to shove, that I would take a bullet for you. I'd like to think, I hope. But I'll tell you this, even if I laid down my life for you, I couldn't take it back up again for you. I could not deal with your problem of sin. I could merely prove my love but I have no authority to save. I'm a sinner in need, just like you. And we're all in need of one who who loves us enough to lay it down, but has the authority to take it up. And Jesus said, I'll do it. I'll lay it down, I'll take it up. And you can take it to the bank 
that every single word of this is gospel truth. He who spoke these words is true. And you can test everything else you hear out there, everything you see on social media, everything you hear from your local news, you can test it by the standard of Jesus Christ. He is true and he is good and his words are eternally true, inerrant. This is it. Because he laid it down and he took it up. And he was commissioned by the Father to do so. Well, what's our response? 19, you got two options. There was a division among the Jews because of these words, and there still is today. Many of them said, he has a demon. You can go that route. You can say he's evil, he's a liar. Or he, and he's insane. That would be to say he's crazy, he's a lunatic. Why listen to him? So your choices are, you, you just can't. There's no, you read this closely, you can't say Uh, Jesus is a good man. I don't embrace him as Savior, but he sure was a good moral prophet, and we ought to be like him. No! Did you see what he said? He's either possessed by a demon, or he's crazy, or he's true. And there was a division, and half of them said, demon crazy. You know what the other half said? The half that the Spirit of God was illumining? Here's what they said. But wait. These aren't the words of one oppressed by a demon. It's just, that's not how a demon, th- these words are anti-evil. He's telling us how to um, walk with God and know God. Th- uh, he's, not, he's not giving us words that draw us away from God into self-absorption or sin. He's calling us towards holiness. He's calling us away from ourselves towards the living God to be said. These aren't the words. The the, the demons don't lead you to God. They lead you away from God. And besides that, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Practically speaking, that's the question they ask. You know what they're doing? Their hearts are softening. Those scales are falling. They're saying, wait a minute. That man's not demon-possessed. That man is true. That man is the good shepherd. And he's the door. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm tired. I am a sinner. And I want to know the love of the Father. I want to be saved. I want to be alive. I want to be full. Father, thank you for your word that's eternally true. Lord, there are some here today that do not know your love. But Lord, those that the scales might fall even this moment that would say, wait a minute. These aren't the words of one leading me astray. He laid it down and he took it up. And in his pasture, there's life abundant. Lord, the ones who are seeing today May they follow you, lay down their life, take up their cross, follow their good shepherd. May they learn to delight in the peace of your pasture. Will you save them? The one penitent sinner who comes forth today and says, me, me, save me, even me. Can you do it? Lord, will you fill their mind and heart right now with a warmth? Flood them 
with the warmth of your love, with an embrace as they've never felt before. Let them know it's you, for only you, only you could fill them with this kind of love. You are our good shepherd. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.